Hi, and welcome to the Unplugged Debate. On this podcast, we delve into the ideas surrounding human interaction with both nature and technology, talking to people about their time in the outdoors, starting from when they were younger all the way through to present day, developing a picture on who and what motivates them to be outside and why they do the things they do in the outdoors, crossing over into talking about their technology usage and how that's changed throughout their life, and speaking to them about the different types of technology they use on a day-to-day basis, from their mobile phones to their running shoes. Once we've developed a good picture of them, we incorporate that into how they think technology has changed their outlook on life and their time in the outdoors. And finishing with how they think technological development has changed society on a wider scale. So hello and welcome. So on today's episode, we have Alan Milne. Alan Milne was born in Elgin and went to Elgin Academy when he was a youngster. Uh, he then moved after school into the parachute regiment uh, and he left after 24 years of service as a sergeant major. Uh, once he had left, he'd set up uh, active skydive and has been doing that since 92. So over 29 years. We were just having a chat before that, Alan, that... Uh, that's longer than you were serving in the military. Yeah, working harder out longer than when I was in. Yeah. Um, so whilst he was in the parachute regiment, Alan did two tours with the Red Devil um, skydiving... Is it the Army display team. Army display team. Um, and then you left as a chief instructor. Yeah, I was the senior chief instructor in the British Army. Oh, okay. Um, so is that is that you sort of running P company type thing or is no no that was um, a different job entirely. Um, the chief instructor job was uh, to do with parachuting, and I was involved in the development of the training and use of square parachutes as opposed to round parachutes. So I was in for that transition period, which was very interesting. Okay, really enjoyed that. Yeah. So is it, is that sort of what triggered you to go in and doing your active yeah. skydiving stuff? Yeah. And when I came out of the army, I had that name because I had written the original manual for British skydiving um, on the training with square canopies. Right. And I helped develop the accelerate free, accelerated freefall program that I run now. So um, it just took off in a natural curve, really, and it's been wonderful. That's quite amazing. I don't, I, I've known you for a long time, but I didn't even know that you were <laughs> sort of wrote the AFF course type thing and, uh, mm. and, and really went for it. I mean, we'll take we'll take it back to to when you were a youngster. Yeah. Um, and how old are, how old are you, if you don't mind me asking? Sixty nine. Sixty nine. So uh, your upbringing, certainly on Elgin, would have been compl- uh, around Elgin would have been completely different to to what it is now. Could yeah. you could you sort of explain yeah, sure. how it would have been? So Elgin was a, is a small rural town, uh, the capital of Murray. Um, wonderful place to grow up. Um, surrounded by fields and hills and uh, all our lives were spent outside and from childhood I've always been interested in the outdoor life so I was into camping I was in, I was in the Cubs the Boy Scouts I was interested in all that stuff learned how to navigate learned how to conduct myself in the field um, absolutely loved that and I was heavily into sports so I was a big time footballer in fact the only thing that stopped me becoming a professional footballer was the total lack of talent. Mm. I was quite a good swimmer. Swam for the army, swam for the regiment. Um, did a lot of other stuff. So um, that athletic kind of background helped me. And I always wanted to be a soldier. And I always wanted to jump out of airplanes. So the parachute regiment was was kind of a natural choice. Yeah. Um, most of the people that I've asked or spoken to have been sort of apart from maybe Steve, have been close to my age. And one of the questions that I asked him is, what was the sort of motivation for you to be outside? Was was it completely intrinsic, or, uh, go and hang out with mates, or was it a parent pushing you out of the door type thing? Or No, my parents didn't really understand it. Um, my dad particularly, who had no inclination for the outdoor life, um, 
and kept criticizing me for it and laughing at me and saying I would never be a soldier because I couldn't get out of bed in the morning, which many young people are like. But I needed motivation. Hmm. And that's what it gave me when being outside. And it was such a healthy background and healthy environment and the groups that we work with. I mean, I found the scouts particularly good. Hmm. Um, and then when I joined the army and some guys kind of laughed at me for being a boy scout said, until they realized I could navigate and I could conduct myself in the field, the city boys that had never lived in the wilds. or um, And similarly, when we got on to uh, survival training, you know, I knew how to catch fish. I knew how to, to um, set snares. I knew how to do all kinds of things, how to prepare fish, how to prepare meat, how to cook things. So I was a very popular guy on the escape and evasion exercises. And that was great fun. Yeah. And so... Uh, and like you're saying, you you were very accomplished in in all the sports that you were going into and stuff. So, um, was it sort of age sixteen you left and then joined the parachute regiment, or was it slightly older than that? Or? No, I was younger. I was fifteen and a half at at that time. So right. in 1967, I joined as a boy soldier, and mm-hmm. I was a boy soldier for two years, and uh, that was a kind of high, harsh upbringing and into the realities of life. I came. And a very sheltered background, very good family, and um, into a, a more rough and ready environment. Enormous stress physically mm. as they developed our physical prowess. And uh, I mentioned having been on the swimming team. I mean, it, it six o'clock every morning was two hours in the swimming pool, and then seven o'clock at night, two hours, and then we had all the physical activity in the middle. So I was absolutely exhausted a lot of the time. But it helped me to grow and mature. Mm. Um, what put me off some things in the military is that you do too much of it. Like I was forced into the swimming. Mm. And I grew to intensely dislike it. And I don't swim at all now. And I find that a bit sad. Yeah. Similarly, I was a good shot. And I was put on the, the shooting team. Uh, and was a sniper later on. But they made us do that day in, day out. And I got bored with it. Yeah. It was only when I started skydiving that a light lit up in my my life and I realized that that's where I wanted to be and that's all I wanted to do. And um, it has been a thrill of mine ever since. Mm. And I was had the good fortune to develop as a competitor. I was an international competitor for 10 years and won 200 medals and trophies. I was five times national champion, world championship medal winner. Um, and now my thrill is training people hmm. and seeing the smiles on their faces as they get over the the apprehension and fear that comes with the first couple of jumps. It's just such a thrill to me still. Yeah. Love it. And so even though obviously parachute regiment is sort of your bread and butter is parachuting, yeah. you were saying that um, you got bored with sort of the swimming and, and, the, and the shooting, but that really didn't get boring doing the jumping out of planes or no, static jumping or done. anything like that never has done that's amazing it's still with me with the enthusiasm i have now that i had 50 years ago yeah does it do you think it keeps you going as well well we have a saying that you don't give up skydiving because you get old you get old because you give up skydiving so i'm going to keep going i'm fit and strong hmm. i can produce the goods to a very high standard we film everything that we do and the clients get the, the video and stills of, of all that we do. And, um, and I look at those videos objectively, not only to train the students, but to critique my own performance mm. and ensure that I'm operating at the highest standard. And the day that slips is the day I'll stop doing it. That's fair enough. That's, that's a good way to keep, uh, keep your standard high and make sure that they're, they're mm. doing it right as well. You you did all this and it was you know super interested in the outdoors. Um, what interested you in in going into the parachute regiment in the first place? Was it because you wanted to be a soldier, or was it? Be- yeah, it, it was the double key of of I wanted to be a soldier. We had a fam- family tradition in the military, mostly the Highland regiments. In fact, always the Highland regiments. They weren't very pleased that I I chose the parachute regiment. Um, and the fact I always wanted to jump out of airplanes, so yeah. that was really quite a simple choice for me. Yeah, because sort of back in the seventies, you only just started with uh, or commercial flights and things like that only really started coming in mainstream yeah. at that time. So, 
it's really interesting that you always knew you wanted to jump out of planes even at that time yeah 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 childhood you know and all the comics i read and all the films that i went to see uh, um all it did was fire up my spirit yeah loved it yeah <laughs> sitting there having a little uh, little moment reminiscing are you alan <laughs> Um, and so, um, as you as you progress through through uh, the parachute regiment, what sorts of things did you do in in whilst you were in? in- well, I specialised in a number of different subjects. I, I was um, I was a weapons instructor, mm-hmm. and that helped greatly with my teaching technique. Military put a lot of emphasis into that, mm. uh, and I was very keen on different weapon systems. I then moved on from there and became a foreign weapons instructor. So we're, we're training the guys how to use captured equipment. Um, I'd had three spells of training recruits, which I absolutely loved. I was a corporal recruit instructor, then a platoon sergeant, mm. and then I was sergeant major on P Company. Um, so those were stages that I really enjoyed. Um, I was a jungle warfare instructor, uh, did a lot of work in the desert all over Northwest Europe. Um, I was a guided missile instructor, anti-tank guided missiles, loved doing that stuff. Um, So there was a great variety and we were moving every couple of years onto different jobs. Hmm. Um, So I was trying to keep my hand in with my career and keep the skydiving going at the same time. Right. That's why I didn't stay on the Red Devils all the time. You know, I came back to my unit and did the promotion courses and did the tours of duty and uh, um, well, I was able to progress quite well. Yeah. And so, I mean, it just sounds like it, we could we could probably sit here and talk for hours about your uh, your accomplishments in the outdoors and, and things like that. Um, I'm really lucky and really thankful I managed to get you to come on. So, yeah, very welcome. Um, you know, um, you you've got. Um, you got some uh, lovely, wonderful children. Did did you impart any of that sort of spirit of being in the outdoors on them as well? Well, the um, I'm a great believer. You've got to give kids the free choice, mm-hmm. so you leave the door open for both of them to do whatever they want to do and encourage them in whatever they wanted to do. Mm. I have to say, my son was a little disappointed that I wouldn't take him camping, but his I had done all the camping that I wanted to do by the time he came along. Yeah. <laughs> I'd spent an awful lot of time in the rough and ready and um, had had quite enough of that. Um, But no, I left the door open for all the kids. It actually surprised me that Alistair, my son, followed me into the skydiving world because although he liked the guys and he liked to be around and he didn't really show any interest. Hmm. And when he went off to uni, uh, his degree was computer science. So I had visions that he would get rich quick and look after his dad, but that didn't work at all because he, he became a skydiver. And when I tried to shout at him, he said, well, it's what you did, Dad. So, But he's now at the, at the top level, you know, and, and um, doing very well at it. And he's a great ambassador for the sport and for our family. And delighted to see it. Yeah. And of course, Lorna's the same. She's, she's just at the top of her field. Uh, yeah. So I'm very fortunate with both my kids. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's a, an interesting way of, of doing it, sort of just leaving the door open for everything, but encouraging mm-hmm. them to, to, to go. And so did that sort of, um, was that in your, your training whilst you were in the parachute regiment as well? Did you try and do that sort of, sort of method? Well, you're looking at, when you're looking at young men, you can see people have a gift for different areas. Hmm. Uh, some are terrific signalers. Uh, some are great navigators, some are, are uh, good with demolitions and explosives. Um, so there are a variety of fields. And as you're working with them, and I, I would show them various things, you could see those whose interest um, had been ignited. And, and then we would just take that a stage further. Mm. And then when we're talking at night or in the quiet periods and they say what they want to do, I would find a method of, uh, of progressing that of giving them the opportunity to expand it a bit more. Mm. And um, and I'm delighted to say that even after all these years, I still get messages and emails saying, thanks for the help you gave me in such and such a situation. Because as a sergeant major, you're often the bad guy. Mm. You're often dealing with them uh, when things have gone wrong. But uh, I felt my place was to support them and to guide them and pick them up and push them on the right way. And 
and it's great to get that feedback that's fantastic yeah have you got have you got a um sort of a, a really favorite moment that when you were sort of outside and, and and in the rough of it have you got like a story that sticks in your mind that i've got some fun there, there's some funnies yeah uh, and there's loads of them let me give you a good one right right at the early stage um we jumped into an exercise and off the west of scotland mm. and we were running and every 48 hours you go to a checkpoint and they have to feed you and you would get something like um, a pig's knuckle with nothing on it, you know, <laughs> that you, you, that, but it fulfilled the legal obligation of having fed us. And as we were running, we were in pairs, as we were running, a farmer's wife waved to, and you desperately don't want to be seen by anybody, but this farmer's wife waved us over and we were cold and wet and it was freezing. And she said, Come with me. And she opened a barn door and all our guys were in this barn. <laughs> and I thought, this is fantastic. <laughs> and she came in in the morning with a huge bucket of porridge and trays of bacon and eggs. And uh, so every 48 hours, we ran like the clappers to look haggard and, and turned up at the rendezvous and picked up a rabbit's foot or whatever, <laughs> tossed it in the hillside and ran back to the... the <laughs> this went on for the exercise and I thought, I've died and gone to heaven, this is terrific. <laughs> so we made the pact that no one would say anything, would never let the cat out of the bag. And a couple of months later, the farmer's wife wrote to the Sunday Post, which is a Scottish newspaper, about this exercise where she had 25, 30 paratroopers in, in the barn and we all, we all got marched in. So. <laughs> That was a funny one. Oh, I bet. There's plenty of them. Oh, it's just wonderful. Mm. And those, those are the sort of the really good memories that yeah. you have. From, yeah. And that's nice that you got you got the the good memories that jump straight back in when people ask you those sorts of questions as well. You're talking about the sort of in the early days with it, on when you're on exercise and things like that. Um, what sort of equipment were you using back in those days? Because it wasn't the high-tech Gore-Tex stuff that you've That's got right. now. That's right. We didn't have any, any Gore-Tex, uh, none of that stuff. So um, the key for us, the issued equipment wasn't the best. So we would buy Peter Storm lightweight jackets, which we wore underneath our, our parachute smocks. Mm -hmm. And that was they were very good at, at keeping top half of your body waterproof. Um, in, in the sleeping bags at night, we would have a, a, a large black bin liner. And you put that inside the sleeping bag so that when you climbed into it, your sleeping bag didn't get soaking. Hmm. And you took your Peter Storm and your parachute smock off. So it kept the sleeping bag dry because it became enormously heavy if it got soaking wet. Hmm. Not to mention cold and uncomfortable. So that was kind of the basics. Equally, we learned to do everything, all the navigating with just a compass and um, what we used to do is get the guys to measure how many paces they took in 100 meters. Mm -hmm. So it was roughly 114 to 116 paces to 100 meters. And for example, when we were in the jungle, um, you get them to put 10 stones in the right-hand pocket and then march on the compass bearing. And uh, every 100 meters, they put a stone in the other pocket. So when all the stones were in the left-hand pocket, you'd gone 1,000 meters. And then you would go back the way so depending how far you'd gone that was the easy way to yeah. navigate and count equally if you were going to meet up at a river crossing or a, a junction of tracks or something like that i always got them to aim off to the left or to the right because if you if you aimed for it and got to one side or the other you wouldn't know where you were mm -hmm. so you'd have to send guys out both ways whereas if you've aimed off to the right you knew that when you got there, you would turn left and it would be within a couple of hundred meters. So that's how I taught them. And in fact, the guys laugh now when they talk about uh, the GPS they use, which makes life so simple. Yeah. But we didn't have GPS at any stage in my career. No. So I never used it in the military. I've used it since. Right. And in fact, now in the, the high altitude uh, parachuting, the technology that they're jumping with, not only night vision goggles that they can see where they're going, mm -hmm but um, GPS on their, their chest. And they've got a little device like, a um, uh, bit like an iPhone, slightly bigger. And they can see in the dark where other parachutes are. They can see the heading that they're supposed to take. They can see the wind speed, the altitude. So is this like wearing a helmet with like a heads up display yeah, type yeah. thing? Yeah, yeah. Right. 
Yeah, it's just incredible technology. Um, and equally, that stuff for, for, in, for training, that we can do it in the hangar. You know, you can put a headset on mm. and set people in any environment to practice them. And I just find that fantastic. Right. So, is it, so if you're doing in the training in, in, in the hangar and stuff, and you put these helmets on, is it sort of them actually falling through the air? Or yeah, what? yeah. Well, you can do it f falling through the air or mostly under canopy. Mm -hmm. um, the, the falling through the air bit we do in a wind tunnel. So that's another great development that we didn't have in my young days. But these vertical wind tunnels where, and even in, in the military, we can put people in there with their rucksack bergens on, the, with their weapons, with their oxygen, with their night vision goggles. And you can learn and make all the mistakes on the ground where it's easy. And if they have a problem, you switch the power off and they're only two or three feet off the net. Yeah. Whereas in the air, if they get into a spin, we've had guys black out, we've had guys be blinded through spinning. Uh, for a couple of days, you know, where they've got blood spots in their eyes, right. they've started spinning and couldn't control it. Um, so these are wonderful developments the guys have got now. Mm. In fact, I know for real that in operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, they've landed 70 people from 20,000 feet in, uh, in the size of a football field in the dark. And I think that's fantastic. Could you, could you imagine trying to do that back in the yeah, 70s, just, 70s or 80s? I show the guys pictures of what we were wearing and I talk about the techniques that we used that they just laugh at me. <laughs> the interesting thing would be to ask there is, um, does it make soldiering easier? Yeah. It, in the, many of the older guys who, I, who, who I've known for a long time say, people can't do what you taught us to do. Yeah. If, if they lost their GPS or, or if... Uh, sat navs went down they wouldn't know how to to deal with it i think that's an exaggeration hmm. but i think a lot of the basic skills have been lost um that said throughout the training and selection period they're not, they're not allowed to use those devices they've got to do it on the old uh, paces and bearings hmm. uh, so they have a rudimentary grounding in the basic skills which is essential yeah because that's that's the inter that's the interesting question about sort of the development of all this technology is um it makes life easier but also do you lose the sets of skills that you learned when you were younger and that you say that you used all the way up and to the point you left you've, you've got to realize that it's the advancements have made life so much easier hmm. and so much better and that's all positive yeah we can't keep harping back to in my day we used to do all this and <laughs> i really don't like to go down that road hmm. but Things like um, um, using uh, infrared and ultraviolet light, it's image intensifiers that the military use a lot, um, where they can put laser beams on, onto targets or measure ranges, or now we've got drones that we can have visual pictures of over the hills and what's going on in the background. And they're even flying them into buildings now. You know, I find that just fantastic technology. Um, so the advancements are all good and they help to keep people safe. Mm -hmm. In the skydiving world, now we've got these computerized automatic activation devices and the lives that they have saved. Mm -hmm. And I'm delighted to have been around in the development of that and... and um, can talk to the guys about what we did and how we worked out the altitude speeds and all the readings that these devices take. Um, and anything that saves lives or injury, prevents injury, it's got to be good. Yeah. Do, uh, I mean, obviously you, you go skydiving a lot these days. Do you, you don't, you don't go out camping or uh, out no. into the outdoors anymore. Been there, done that. Yeah, been there, done that, got the t-shirt. Got the t-shirt, yeah. read the book, ate the pie. <laughs> Let's let's move into the skydiving world. And obviously, you said you were at the the, the point where the AFF was getting developed, and, and you helped write it. Yeah. Um, let's talk through the the technology you would have used back then, and and all the way through to now. It it's funny how um, how things develop. So, a terrific guy called Ken Coleman, who was an American, a Californian international competitor developed the accelerated freefall program mm -hmm. and he thought why should we take people with static lines at low altitude and work their way out why don't we take them straight to 12 13 14 thousand feet 
and with two experienced instructors on them. And as soon as I saw that, a light went on in the back of my head. That's what I've been looking for. Mm-hmm. And when we started it, there was no background. There was nothing to draw on. We had to learn for ourselves. Yeah. Um, so I got qualified and, and we started working away with it. And as we worked, I could see things that I wasn't really that happy. We could do this better by changing the technique slightly. Mm-hmm. For example, the ripcord for a student used to be on a belly band around your waist. And first of all, if the belly band got twisted, the ripcord couldn't be pulled. Now that's instructor's incompetence, uh, but it did sometimes happen. Mm. So they took the belly band off and put the ripcord onto the hip. That worked fine. And we used to teach people to look at the ripcord, reach for it, and pull it. But we found that when they looked at for it, they broke their body position. They reversed their arch, stuck the backside in the air, and sometimes flicked over in deployment, and that was dangerous. Mm. So we moved the toggle from the hip to the bottom of the container. It's called Bock, base of container. Mm-hmm. Working on the basis that when you go to the toilet to wipe your bum, you can't see it, but you never miss. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's and that's the standard procedure for everyone now. Yeah. Um, equally, we did a way... Uh, we used to teach students on ripcords. Mm. And we used to say, if you drop the ripcord, it costs you £10 for the handle. And of course, 50% of first jump students drop the ripcord. That's the last thing they're thinking of hanging on to. And then when they finish the course, we teach them to use what we call a throwaway pilot shoot, which is what all advanced jumpers use. Mm-hmm. And some years ago, I was working in Florida, and we were having a discussion with some senior guys, and we said, why don't we train them on throwaway pilot shoots from the first jump? And I thought, that's peculiar. Hmm. Would that work? But of course, a student only knows what you've taught them. The problem was in our heads, not the students' heads. Hmm. We started doing it in Florida, and it worked perfectly. And I brought it back to UK with loads of videos of how it works and people were horrified here it took two years to get it to work here really um we don't like change because we're british you know we've got the we've always done it this way yeah and i said yes we want an empire wearing red tunics firing muskets but life has moved on and uh so now everyone uses throwaway pilot shoots you know that that kind of thing we used to have in the 60s these mechanical automatic activation devices and the the limit of error was 1500 feet above or below what it was set for Mm. that's ridiculous i never trusted those things and then in 1991 a german called helmet cloth developed the first computerized automatic activation device and it's accurate to within one meter right while you're falling at 120 miles an hour yeah it is phenomenal And I was the first to buy them for student parachutists. And people told me I was stupid because they cost twice as much as the old mechanical things. And thankfully, we've never had to use one. But if we ever had a major problem, my guys have all got them. They're now used by almost everyone. But this was in the early days. You sort of briefly touched on the the equipment and stuff that you used within the army. Uh, What... How how did you see the development of the equipment change as as you sort of came to be sergeant major and leaving leaving the forces? Um, well, the technology the guys are using. The trouble is, the weight of the equipment that the boys are carrying is mm. just phenomenal. Um, you've got laser rangefinders, you've got radio batteries, you've got ammunition, rations, explosives, detonators. It's I mean, they're just jumping with a phenomenal amount of equipment, but it's all stuff that can be used. Mm. And one of the big weaknesses for us as paratroopers is if we are behind enemy lines, when you're being resupplied is when you're weak, because if they pick up the helicopters or aircraft that come in to resupply you. So what they've developed lately is the ability to carry uh, up to 600 pounds of equipment. And... The idea is that we bury it okay, and it becomes what we call a dead letter box. Mm. So you can go away and do your jobs. And if you've got three or four of them for your group, um, you've got an enormous amount of equipment and all you need to find is fresh water. Right. Um, 
So if you bury it and then you come back to that location to resupply every now and then. Uh, so that's one of the developments. And the reason they can carry that equipment is the development of the square parachutes. Mm. And everyone sees in the sport the tandem jumping now. Well, that's the parachutes that the special forces use. They are big. They're even bigger than the tandem parachutes. So they can carry this massive weight. Um, but to watch the guys, in fact, it's so heavy that they have trouble getting out of the aircraft. Um, sometimes they're laying down on the ramp of a Hercules and there are rollers on the ramp and they're just pushed off the rollers. And it's, it's, it's quite something to see. That's, yeah, I bet. that's all developed since, since I've left. Uh, but it's great to see. Yeah. And, and and so I guess that um, with all that sort of development and stuff, it, it makes it makes the soldiering easier. And obviously, a bit of comical stuff watching this person with six hundred pounds getting pushed off a Hercules and stuff. Um, what what do you mean by sort of the square parachutes? Obviously, um, if you watched sort of like Band of Brothers or things like that, you've got the yeah. you've got the circular parachutes. So <clears throat> well, that's what the that. main parachute battalions still use, right. and they they do that because they can jump at very low altitude, and they can put six hundred guys into a small area. Um, the aircraft are flying so low they're very difficult to shoot at them. Uh, can't be picked up by radar. Um, so you've got a mass of guys on the ground really fast, uh, get themselves shaken out, organized, and go on to do the task. Mm -hmm. The square parachutes are really used by the pathfinders and the special forces groups who would go in first and would clear the area to allow that big major operation to come. Mm. So the square parachutes um, are far easier to land, far more gentle to land. You land like a sack of tatties and, and the old round parachutes. Um, and that's just a fantastic development. Um, so they're trying to do bigger and bigger groups uh, with that system. And those are the developments that are going on just now. Hmm. And so um, with that, there was, there was one question that I wanted to ask as well. Have you ever done sort of the, the, the halo jump or the, uh, was it the high altitude, high opening ones? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they, they must be extraordinary. And I, I guess the development of parachutes would have only allowed you to do that yeah. with with the development of oxygen tanks that are put that portable. Well, we had the oxygen anyway. We were doing Halo, mm -hmm. um, and when we started the Halo, I, I started in nineteen seventy two, and we still had round parachutes. Mm. And um, I've got some fascinating old pictures I was showing the boys last week of, uh, of our exits with, with the hay hole. And um, it's called hay hole because it's high altitude, high opening. Mm -hmm. And we were opening at 20,000 feet and we had a compass and an altimeter. And you look at the compass and you follow a bearing. Mm -hmm. Now that's fine until you go into a bit of cloud mm. and you get static electricity and the compass starts oh, going no in a circle. Way. So you come out of the cloud and you can't find anybody because you've all gone in different directions. And equally, while you're in cloud, you're all going, hello, hello, in case someone's heading towards you. It's, I mean, it's funny to sit here talking. It's yeah, not, but it's when, not so funny you, when you're at 20,000 feet going, oh, Whereas, as I was saying to you, with this technology, when they're jumping with this uh, iPhone-type device, on, mm. they can see where everyone else is, and they've got a bearing, and the GPS is not affected by static electricity. So it is an enormous benefit. Mm. Equally, the weapon systems, the rifle, yeah. now they're jumping with much lighter rifles than the big heavy SLR that we had. Mm. Um, and with a smaller bullet, you can carry twice as many of them, which is advantageous. Mm. Um, that was some funny stuff. <laughs> of course, the technology has developed also for the Royal Air Force. Yeah. Because when we did continuation high-altitude stuff, they would bring in trainee Special Forces crews. And we missed the drop zone on Salisbury Plain one night by 14 miles. Really? And we landed where we thought we were in the dark, where we thought we should be, 12 of us. We all got together. We're looking around. After about an hour, we couldn't figure where we were. Got onto a road, started walking down the road, saw a pub, walked into the pub in Wiltshire. Eee, oh, yo, yokels looking. And we've got black faces and all these weapons. And everything went quiet. And, and 
And we said, where, where are we? <laughs> and they said, where do you want to be, boy? <laughs> and we told them, they said, no, no, you're on the other side of Marlborough. <laughs> so we had to get, uh, nobody had mobile phones then. Yeah. So we had to get uh, the phone number of Salisbury Operations and tell them that we were all alive. Yeah. And what happened is that a trainee navigator had picked up the wrong DECA beacon. DECA was the radar system that they used to position us. Yeah. And he'd read the wrong beacon. Oh, no. It cost him heavily in beer. <laughs> I'm sure it did. <laughs> we touched on it really. Is the developments in technology? Obviously, you're speaking to you earlier. You're very much a person that doesn't live in the past and doesn't live those those glory days. So, the develop. You do you believe that the development of technology is is a good thing? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I can't think of anything that we use that is detrimental. Mm. Everything is positive and um, uh, beneficial to the guys. And um, we're talking about like the the technology that, that the soldiers are using and things like that. We're yeah. not talking about sort of modern day civi civilian society. No, no. Uh, I mean, things like uh, look at the guided weapons. Mm. I mean, the first one the, was just about impossible to hit to hit a target with. And we're now on the third generation where it's fire and forget. So yeah. you, you aim at the target, push the button, the missile gets its own way. You can set it to hit the top of a tank, which is obviously where it's lighter, the armor is lighter, and you have a better chance of knocking it out. And I, I look at that stuff and the development of it, and I think that is fantastic. Mm. The guided system that I use called Milan. We thought that was fantastic because you could fly a missile through the window of a house 2,000 meters away. We've mm. never had anything that could do that. And it was wire guided, so the wire trailed out behind it. And the, the, the guidance messages that you sent along the wire, uh, you just kept the, the button on the target mm. and the missile automatically locked onto the target. We thought that was fantastic. But the developments lately, and looking at the... the um, the controlled bombs that you see in Iraq and Afghanistan where um, they put a radar beam on them, mm. a laser beam, and the missile just flies to the target. That yeah. is just incredible stuff. Now, when we first saw that in 1982, the system that we carried was as big as a suitcase. And when you look at them now, it's like a little video camera in the guy's hand, and it produces all the information which is passed to the aircraft and the pilot doesn't even press a fire button. He flies and the missile releases at the optimum point, flies down the wire and, and hits the target. It's just incredible. I mean, th those sorts of developments just make it easier and safer for, for blokes. Safer for everyone around. What you obviously, um, as, you, as you go through the, the ranks and stuff, you, you have to do more admin and, and things like that. Just talk me through when uh, you sort of started going up and the, like the development of computers and things like that. Um, when did you start really sort of having to get your head around that sort of, sort of thing? Well, I was already a sergeant major when computers um, came into being and I, in the late 80s. And uh, I recognised the potential for that very quickly mm -hmm. and volunteered to do night school in... Um, in a local college and as soon as I said I wanted to do that the military paid for it yeah so I undertook a number of courses to get myself up to speed and uh, that development has, has just made such a difference in the administration mm -hmm. uh, where you can adjust and control and now you can have on a variety of systems like the same thing on my iPhone I've got my iPad and I've got my mainframe at home you know as I work on something when I'm in California or Florida or Dubai or Spain and mm. um, it's all being up updated at home and I come home press the print button and everything's there where I want um, I just find that terrific and I can keep spreadsheets on how many jumps my canopies have done, when the reserve repack dates are due, all the administrative tasks that I need, when the equipment needs servicing. Hmm. Um, can't go wrong with that stuff. It's just great. And at the end of every trip, print it off, take it away fresh, make any adjustments, come home, same detail. Yeah. And at the end of the year, um, it's all being collated month by month on the spreadsheet. 
Um, so in December, you press the button and you've got your annual report for everything, you know, and no work at all. Whereas you used to have to sit down for hours and hours going through books and notes and papers. And if you've lost something or it's been misplaced or it's just a different world. Mm. Mm. And look at things like um, uh, storage. Um, if you need to replenish in boots or rations or ammunition or whatever, as it's being issued, it's being knocked off the spreadsheet. Mm. So those are the, the next stage in the chain of command above us are seeing where they are and are looking ahead to redeploy things. Yeah. So, wonderful. Yeah. I, I, it's interesting. Um, obviously, you, you put yourself forward for the, the computer skills stuff. A, a lot of people of your generation do struggle with yeah, yeah. with and computers and, and, and being guy, Guys would have nothing to do with it. You know, a lot of them would just, uh, fine, you do whatever you want. Mm. But it very quickly got to the stage where you can't progress. No. I have to say that was overtaken by the newer generation because they had come from schools where they were trained mm. and could point out um, facts and figures and techniques and um, improvements. And, and it's a very fast rolling ball. Mm. And we'll continue in that manner. Well, it's, it's every every year or every two years, they, they double the amount of transistors on a, yeah. on a circuit board. So yeah. they've just got faster and faster and faster since, yeah. I mean, simple things like radios. The radios we had, uh, we used to send more code in the long-range patrols I was involved in. That That's a very hard-earned skill. Mm. And... Um, People say, why do you use Morse code? Well, you used it because it was low frequency. Voice is high frequency, VHF. Mm. And uh, Morse code was low frequency, um, but it had three times the range. That's where it was advantageous to us. Where the problem comes is it took a long time to send. So if the bad guys have the facility, the electronic facility to search for you, they can pinpoint you much better. So it was developed that you could send all your message into your little radio, push a button, and it went out in one second, mm. picked up at the other end, and then they could play it back. But the modern radios are now satellite radios, and you can speak to Hong Kong, Dubai, South Africa, in with no fuss yeah, or bother. Yeah. We, had, we had trouble for 10 miles, you know, and... So th those developments are just incredible because communication is the key. Mm. If you can pass the right information to the right people, well, everything is easier. Yeah. I mean, look at, look at the outdoors now, the, the, um, the, the situation with the mountain rescue teams. Um, people are being saved because they're carrying mobile phones mm. and they can be located by the phone. Um, people who are totally ill-prepared, haven't got the right equipment or, or anything else, but we can still save their lives. And the technology that they use to get the helicopters and to pinpoint people and the, and the skill of the pilots and fly in to hoist them off the mountains, it's just incredible stuff. Yeah, I mean, I was walking up uh, the, uh, Ben Vorlich, which is one of our Monroes just around where, where we live. And um, I was speaking to a group of 18-year-olds that were using Snapchat maps not a guy, not not a, a a bit of techno, a bit of software that you'd use to guide yourself in the mountains. But and I was looking at them. And it's like, oh, did, where's Ben? Where's the actual peak in this sort of uh, sort of? That's it there. Oh, so if we've walked around that basin, then then uh, then we've missed it. Then yes, yes, you have indeed. And you're sort of you're sort of standing there going, obviously, you're you're quite well versed in in map navigation. Uh, uh, it, there's a disconnect with people understanding yep, that absolutely. Um, and so it's really interesting talking to you because you're so or it seems like you're so for the, all the technological development um, but it, it's a case of the people that you're working with I think are the people that have to know both sides of it because yep. if they're in a war zone or something yep. and all that stuff goes they still need to be able to know the basics absolutely but there's a lot of people in the civilian world that 
actually have no idea on. We used to find it regularly. We would come off the mountains and you find people walking up the mountain and say, hang on a minute, look, look what you're dressed in. You're not going up there like that, are you? And, and yeah, I, what's the problem? I've got my mobile phone. And, so have you any idea what the conditions are like? Two, three thousand feet above, it, up, above us. Mm. How strong the winds are. You've got no proper clothing, no protection. Um, yeah, it's the shorts and sandals conundrum. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and so, I mean, it's brilliant that we have these targeting bits of software that we can find these people on the mountains. But um, I think that having a mobile phone gives someone a false sense of security. That's, that's, that's where it's detrimental. Mm. Yeah. So, uh, But it's not the technology mm. that's detrimental. It's people's perception of it. Yeah. It's their reliance on it. Hmm. Look at people with sat-nav, lorries with sat-navs that end up in farmer's tracks that aren't wide enough for the lorries, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. You've got to exercise common sense. Hmm. So what I'm trying to get at is it's a case of using it as a tool rather than it's an a dependence aid. on it. That's right. Yeah. It's an aid. Hmm. should be used in conjunction with other aids, principally gumption and common sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I haven't I haven't done proper nap map nav for a while now, but pretty sure I could pick it up quite easily, um, and go again. But it's also having that knowledge of we're in Scotland as well. We're in the UK where weather is very very changeable very quickly. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and even if it's sunny in the morning, you'll still take a raincoat with you because it could it could be prepared for the worst we get all four seasons in the same day yeah exactly um ah people don't appreciate that when they get wet mm. if it's windy the, the wet soaks the heat from the body the wind blows it away and it's a rapidly eroding process until they get exposure mm. and the end result of exposure is death yeah and they sit down for a rest and sleep takes over and they wake up dead it's yeah it's it's incredible um in, incredible to think that a lot of people just don't have that knowledge any longer you you know the, there's been stories that i've heard talking from guys that work in community groups and there's there's people in in a city that have never seen a cow for in real in real life or or a sheep or anything like that and then they say you ask where does a steak come from well, it comes down from the local shop. Yeah, yeah. You know. I, <clears throat> one of those exercises, survival exercises we were running on, we, we ran into a checkpoint, another exercise, and we were offered uh, pheasants. Mm. And I shouted to the guy, big Glaswegian hood with me, and said, uh, get the cock pheasant. And he said, which one's the cock? And I said, the brightly colored one. And he grabbed it and we ran out because we're frightened of getting jumped on in, in the rendezvous. And as we were running, he said, why did we get the cock? And I said, because it's twice as big as the hen. There's twice as much meat on it. And the fact that someone didn't know that. Yeah. And equally, when I was catching fish, the guys who had never tasted trout or salmon. Mm. I, I mean, being a country boy, I was utterly shocked at all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I do wonder, because obviously you've got the perspective of li living through that. Do you feel, even though you have a, a very forward-thinking mind and the technology, as long as it's used as an aid and a tool, is a very good thing, but as the advent of technology has really progressed and you've got younger generations now, um, do you feel there is a disconnect between sort of people of a younger generation, maybe even my generation, um, and and the outdoors and, and how bad they could get into a situation or something like that well i think it started in my in my time training recruits <clears throat> and we had young guys coming to us who had never worn boots hmm. they lived their lives in trainers yeah so when they put boots on they had problems with their feet and endurance marches and so the development was to send the boots to them when they enlisted so that they wore them for a couple of weeks before they, they came to us so that they were broken in, mm. so that their feet were used to them. So we have to modify it. We may have to dig a bit deeper, but the young guys and girls that are around now have the same qualities that people always did. Mm. Society doesn't cater for as much of the outdoors as there was in my day, although I'm pleased to hear that with scouting and guiding that, that groups are 
absolutely chock-a-block, and I think that's, that's wonderful. Yeah. To get kids outside, to get them running about, um, mm. is the way to the future. Not sitting in front of computer screens. They've got to learn that technology, but it's not the be-all and end-all. Yeah. It's perfect what you're saying, because uh, there there is now a big... Like things that you would have done and you probably wouldn't have thought about when you were when you were a kid there has to be a we do forest schools a lot now and they're they're an organized thing for primary school children who um who sort of go out and they play play in the mud play with leaves learn how to whittle or something along those lines and it has proven to be better their math science english um and social skills have, have all shot through the roof when they've started mm. doing that sort of mm. thing. So, but it, it's yeah. the fresh air; it opens the mind. Mm. When I'm working at home, your brain gets fuddled if you're if you're too much in the problems. You can't figure your way out of it. And then in the afternoon, I get my boots on and get up on the hills, and suddenly it all clears, and I can sort out the problems of the world. And I make my notes and come back, and then you can complete the task. But if you're stuck inside all the time. You don't have that, um, and it, more and more we're seeing that for people's mental health, instead of prescriptions of pills of one kind or another, get out and run about, mm. get out and walk, get out and swim, get on a bike, do something. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting you say that as well because there has been uh, there has been medical uh, prescriptions for people to go in and join in a, in a gardening group or something like that and just be outside and, and interact with the fauna and flora you don't have to have do a lot here. just yeah. a little bit mm. and every day repeat yeah well I, I think we'll leave it on that on that note there Helen that was that was fantastic there is one thing that I normally do just at the end uh, and that's I ask you uh, a little bit of an ambiguous question so if you had the um the the time money money was no issue time was no issue uh, and you could go anywhere in the world for a year uh, and live completely off grid would you do it and where would you go um well being a happily married man with a family that, that that's problematic because yeah, i don't yeah. want to be away from my family of course um i would love to be on one of the western isles yeah i would love to do one of those uh hideaway programs where uh, you're fishing, hunting, shooting, uh, living entirely off-grid. I That would just suit me down to the ground. But the Western Isles in Scotland, mm -hmm. to me, are just paradise. Right. Um, and having been determined when I retired from the army to come home and live in Scotland again is just a thrill for me. Yeah. Perfect. Well, that was the most succinct answer that I've ever got. So, <laughs> And the quickest answer I've ever got. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks very much, Alan. Much appreciated. You're very welcome, Craig. Very well. Big thank you again for Alan for joining us on this episode. Next episode, we have M. Barrett giving her perspective on the Unplugged debate. So until then, thanks for listening.